the folks who made Navalny knew it was topical, that's why they're doing it, but they, they couldn't have realized just how topical it would be, because here we are watching at a film festival in a crowded screening room, and meantime, what's the topic of conversation? Yeah, even at, at, in the film festival lobbies, people talking about Ukraine, you know? And so you couldn't ask for, this sounds really crass, because I don't, I don't, but I don't mean it that way, but, but you know, almost like as a marketing opportunity, like, you know, what are you showing or what, what are you distributing? Well, we have a film about Navalny. It's like, oh, really? You know, I mean, the film sells itself at that point, And it's just a bonus that it's actually a really good film. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about what we saw at the Maryland Film Festival. And Mike, wasn't it great to be back in person for the Maryland Film Festival? Because last year it was all virtual. Talk about a welcome question. <laughs> it was really wonderful to be back. I mean, I, I've been a veteran at that film festival for as long as it's been around, which is more than 20 years at this point. And I so look forward to it. Some of the people there are people I know and see all the time. There are other people that I call them once a year friends. And, and you run into folks that you don't see otherwise all that often. And so anyway, whether it's somebody you see all the time or hardly ever, still to actually have live human beings there, and, you know, all joking aside on this, I mean, I was really quite moved by it, just simply be back there in what I call a semblance of normalcy. You know, everybody had to be uh, you know, there with proof of vaccination and masked and all that, but that's become sort of the new normal in many ways. But you know what? Once you actually got in there to watch movies, it was pretty much the same as as always. And the thing I want to say, and, and again, it really, really hit me in the heart. I was really kind of moved by this, the fact that as I'm watching the movie, I'm also responding, or at least sensitive to, the people around me. And Marie and I have talked about this because she and I were at the festival together much of the time. The fact that, yeah, I mean, my eyes are focused on the screen. I like to think like I'm totally blocked in. That's what I'm watching. But how can you not notice around you like, well, is anybody laughing? Or are people restless? Are they going out for food and drink? All these things. And you can tell when an audience is really with a film. And I love that sense of sometimes a really quiet theater, actually, where people are really pulled into it. And then, you know, when you do have something funny or something heartbreaking, whatever, the fact that you're kind of sharing in that collectively. So that actually really was something that on an emotional level meant a lot to me. And the festival was more or less what it had always been prior to the pandemic. Related to that, very closely related is oftentimes you'll have cast and crew members present for the screenings. And, I, you know, I love to stick around for those Q&As. And we can talk more about that as we talk about individual films. But the fact that, you know what, you've just seen a film and whether you liked it or hated it or meh, whatever your response was, you know, the director's there, the actors are there, but you can ask them whatever you want or in any event, just sort of bask in their presence, if you will, that sense of immediacy. And sometimes they are seeing the film for the first or almost the first time with, with a live audience. And, and so, you know, just as it's hitting me emotionally, how nice it is to see it with an audience, it's hitting them the same way. And I don't care how confident you are as a film director, you'd still need a bit of reassurance there that the audience liked you, they really liked you. And so for cast and crew, it means a lot that way. And Marie, let me hand it back to you now, because you and I have talked a lot about what I call the sort of um, serendipity of just, you know, conversations in the lobby or just things you overhear or that kind of audience vibe that you get. And those are memories that are always directly tied into the film itself. And we can talk about that. Whenever you talk about a certain film that you saw at the festival, where you will mention, oh, and there was the guy during the Q&A who whatever, you know, these are like uh, attached memories that it might as well be like folded into the film itself. 
It really does give it that sense of a live environment, like something happening right now, very immediate. And I did want to say also that back in the day, the whole festival used to be held in the Charles Theater. So you went to one place, you parked one place, and then everybody was concentrated in that one theater. But now it's some stuff is at the Parkway, and then some stuff is over at Micah. So you have to check the schedule and see what you'd like to see and where it's going to be, because it's a little bit more spread out. So I chose all movies that were playing at the Parkway just because I wanted to pack in as many films as possible. And you bring up a really interesting point that you get a sense for... I'm going to use your favorite word, Mike, zeitgeist. Oh, no, we weren't going to use that word. (laughs) I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. Once per episode, we may Yes. All right. right. So I've used it up. But you really do get a sense of that because, you know, you pick things. And sometimes you you go into the theater and you realize nobody else thought this was going to be a very good movie because it's there's lots of empty seats. And other times, like when we watched Navalny, that's the movie I want to start talking about, it was held in a really smallish theater as opposed to one of the larger ones. And it was standing room only. I think they sold every single seat, which we were surprised about because they had said they were only going to sell 70% capacity, you know, because of COVID. But that was the movie I wanted to see the most. And apparently everybody else agreed with me. But this movie was really, to me, the highlight of the festival. What did you think, Mike? Well, yeah, before I get to Navalny per se, I want to double back on what you're saying about venues, because venues count, don't they? And the short version is that the festival had begun primarily at the Charles Theater, and then for various reasons, locations changed, uh, were adjusted. Anyway, the short answer is, it having been primarily at the Charles Theater for uh, its early history, as the Parkway was refurbished and reopened as a movie theater, the Maryland Film Festival was part of that administratively. So anyway, without getting too down in in the weeds with everything that went on in terms of going from the Charles to the Parkway, it did, okay? So when it was at the Charles, Marie's point is well taken that, you know, you have multiple theaters and you kind of bop from one side of the hallway to the other and it's crowded in a happy sense, right? You know, people coming and going, you know, somebody, a show just let out and you say to somebody, hey, what'd you just see? You know, and you're gay from whether the smiles or the frowns, how they felt about it. So in any event, what we should say in terms of venues is the Parkway, the Charles, you know, is an art house with the main theater and and then additional smaller theaters adjacent. The Parkway is somewhat similar in the sense that it's an even older theater. It goes back to the mid-19-teens. It was, you know, what we would call a movie palace now. And when it was restored, it wasn't fully restored. And what I mean is the original theater, I mean, I used to go there back in the day. The original theater was in bad shape when they took it over. They did a partial restoration. I have never been to the Majestic Theater at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, but I've read and heard that it was similar in the sense that it was not a full restoration. Because a full restoration would be totally restoring all the ornate plaster work, you know, the murals repainted, all that. And, and they, they weren't, they didn't have the money for one thing. And number two, they thought, let's sort of keep it more or less as is. It's almost like a ghosted theater in some ways. You expect Norma Desmond to come out from Sunset Boulevard or something, because <laughs> a, a lot of great silent films were shown there in the teens and 20s. But anyway, what counts is that it was modernized in terms of the projection facilities, the screen, all those things that we care about. And it's just really neat to see it in not quite a derelict setting, but just simply that, you know, if the walls are faded and chipped, you know, that that's sort of the, the, the ghostly spirits, if you will. But anyway, that's the main theater. Adjacent to it, they constructed two brand new 
very small theater, so much so they're more like screening rooms. So when we get back to Navalny, it was like watching in a packed screening room. And the festival also over the years has used other venues. And again, not getting down in the weeds with all the Byzantine details of where it went and, and when, all that stuff. The fact that, you know, it has made use in the past of the University of Baltimore, the Walters Art Museum. There have been various venues that's used in Midtown Baltimore and up into Station North. But to Marie's point, the festival now, as we saw it this year and as it's been in very recent years, primarily is something that's spread between the Parkway Theater, which is at North and Charles in the heart of Baltimore, and the Maryland Institute College of Art, MICA. And MICA has the Brown Center with a you know, great big auditorium and all that. It also has smaller venues there. So even when you're doing the circuit, you're going a few blocks this way or that way. But again, back to Marie's point, it was kind of nice to have everything that we were scheduling for the Parkway because you could get out of a film you had time for the Q&A, because if you ran to the next film, you were just running to the next floor. You, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't much of a hike that way. Now, let's get back to Navalny. So anyway, we saw Navalny and what is a theater, but sort of a screening room size there. The great thing, this is about Alexei Navalny, and he's the Russian political dissident that, you know, he was on Putin's enemies list. And so there was an attempt made to poison him, and the film goes into great detail about all that. But what I'll start off the discussion with is this observation. It's not unusual for people nowadays to fully document their own lives, and we can talk about that. In this film, Navalny, who's hyper-aware of media and how to, how to make use of it, and if you will, manipulate it, and so on, there is no shortage of really interesting footage shot by Navalny and his team themselves. And so that's a case where, if anything, there's so much to choose from. So then when you get the film director coming in to, you know, to actually make the film, gosh, it's an abundance of footage to work with. So when it comes down to aspects of his personal life in terms of family and friends and the notorious poisoning incident and so on, my gosh, it's all there. What impressed me wasn't that it was there, because I knew it would be, I mean, knowing that much about him, but what impressed me was how skillfully it was edited together in the completed film. And it's really a very well-made film. And I'll, I'll quickly give one example of how skillfully edited it is. Vladimir Putin, needless to say, really hates this guy, right? You know, he tried to poison him, you, you know, doesn't like the guy. And Putin dislikes him to such an extent that Putin refuses to say Navalny's name. And so there's a montage, another of my favorite words, along with zeitgeist, mm -hmm. there's, there's a montage in the film where Putin is at press conferences and speeches and all, and he's being asked about the poisoning. And, and, and what, what he says at one point is, you know, that, that man you're referring to, the man you're speaking of, who, uh, you know, is, is, is currently a patient in a German hospital. I mean, he'll say things like that and, you know, he'll smirk a little, that, that really kind of sinister, like semi-smirk. And when he says that, that, you know, that certain person who's a patient in, in a hospital in Germany and all the variations on that, I thought, my goodness, you have to like really dislike somebody intensely where you won't even say the name. And when you see that like edited together in just a several minute montage, I mean, it's both funny and frightening the extent to which, you know, this Russian government will go to silence the opposition. And one way to really silence the opposition or to try to is, to try not to even acknowledge it, right? I mean, in the sense that, you know, to not even use the name of the person that, that's the subject. So Marie, how'd you feel about that? Because I thought that was one of the things I found really impressive within the film is it would have been an interesting film anyway, just because of the subject matter. But when you edit it that way, I think it really pulls the viewer in even more. 
I agree. And I think it sort of kind of reminds me of how, you know, you're not supposed to say Voldemort's name and Harry Potter. It's like he who shall not be named. <laughs> but in some ways that gives, you know, your opponent more power. Now, what I don't think they could have anticipated was how relevant this particular movie was. And it reminds me, Mike, of when we did one of our film festivals that we had chosen, we have a Pope. And we had no idea by the time our film festival was airing that, you know, we were going to have a new Pope because, you know, one of the Popes was going to step down. I remember when I introduced the movie, I said, so this is a movie about, you know, a Pope who decides he no longer wants to be Pope as if that could happen. But that was one of those instances where Montiabara was overflowing with people who were suddenly interested in this topic. Marie, I remember when we picked that particular film, I had seen it first run at the Charles Theater and, and liked it quite a bit. So when we were doing the film series that you're just mentioning at HCC, it was one of my picks. But honestly, when I picked it, really, I just picked it because I thought it's a good film. Let's show it. You know, nothing much beyond that. Inherently interesting in terms of papal subject matter. And then by the time it actually got on the schedule, Marie, you're absolutely right. I remember just as you talked about hosting a, a screening of it, I hosted one of the other screenings of it. And the auditorium on Ibarra was nearly full. And during the Q&A, people were treating the two of us as if we were somehow prophets. Like, like it was just, I mean, I was, you know, we should, you should always accept a compliment, I guess. But it was just like, how did you know? To how did you know? Yeah. How did you know? I know, like, how did you know? And what else do you know sort of thing? Like, what, what you know, what, what smoke is coming up the papal chimney there in terms of the next pope or something? And, you know, that's, again, a, a serendipitous thing. You like to feel like you're, you're riding the currents of current affairs. And sometimes it just hits in a way. And so anyway, to double back on what you were saying, the folks who made Navalny knew it was topical. That's why they're doing it. But they, they couldn't have realized just how topical it would be. Because here we are watching at a film festival in a crowded screening room. And meantime, what's the topic of conversation? Yeah, even at, at, in the film festival lobbies, people talking about Ukraine, you know. And so you couldn't ask for, this sounds really crass, because I don't, I don't, but I don't mean it that way. But, but, you know, almost like as a marketing opportunity, like, you know, what are you showing or what, what are you distributing? Well, we have a film about Navalny. It's like, oh, really? You know, I mean, the film sells itself at that point. And it's just a bonus that it's actually a really good film. They had to be kicking themselves when they realized how many people really wanted to see it because like I said every seat in that tiny little screening room was full and had they realized you know how topical it was going to be they probably could have sold a whole lot more seats in the bigger auditoriums because you know as you're watching it you're thinking okay this is a guy who actually tried to run against Putin at one point who is Russian and Ukrainian who could be the next leader of Russia if they topple Putin and all this is going through your mind while you're watching it that, oh, we're finally actually getting to see behind the scenes what this guy has to say for himself, what his, you know, the people around him have to say. And like you said, Mike, there's all this great footage, all these, you know, TikTok videos, which just shows you how much, you know, younger and hipper he is than Putin, which left you with a sense of hope you know, coming out that, oh, you know, maybe all isn't lost. Maybe there is somebody waiting in the wings who's both brave and daring and not insane. <laughs> those, are all, those are all advantages. <laughs> and it also, it has some moments that are actually pretty funny, like when they've, they've discovered, you know, the building where they're manufacturing all these poisons to use against their political enemies. And they're trying to, you know, get the scientists on the phone to you know, expose what was really going on behind the scenes. And, you know, they reveal that they hacked somebody's password. I think it was like Moscow One. 
And once they hacked into it, he changed it to Moscow two. And then they hacked that and he changed it to Moscow three. And finally to Moscow four, which is how they referred to him, which I thought was, it was just so, that's just so what people do. So predictable, but also seems like really you're in charge of something that nefarious and you, and you don't know even better how to you know create a password. Moments like that gave you moments to rest in between all of the horrifying things they were actually exposing about what was going on over there. You know, it's like funny and not funny because it is really funny, actually. I mean, just how clueless and how basically stupid, you know, some of the, these bureaucrats are, they outfox also readily. And yeah, that's very funny. I laughed a lot at that, but it's not funny in a sense. You realize these are the people running the show. You know, this is the government apparatus you're up against. And that's where it can actually be rather depressing if you follow through on that. But you know what? One of the virtues of the film is the fact that like Navalny himself, he has a really ironic sense of humor. He laughs at a lot of things that are like, fun. well, I always say funny and not funny. And the filmmaker, Daniel Rower, the, the director and, and the whole team, uh, they sort of go with that spirit, don't they? I mean, the film as a whole has that kind of spirit. So it never really gets too bogged down in heavy duty because you really could get yourself all worked up in an angry way here. But yeah, there's room for the anger, but also just the irony of the situation. That, you know, they're trying to figure out who was behind the poisoning and how it was done and how readily these bureaucrats are gold, how they're, how they're, they're taken in and fooled. And they get all kinds of like a like gold mine of information out of these people, just sometimes just like pretend to be someone else or, or, or just being naive and calling up and say, hey, is this so-and-so? Did you work at a particular factory in the year or whatever? I wanted to ask you, you know, when, when you approve, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes the way people just open up where, where you think, you know, these they're up against spies. Shouldn't the spies be smarter? <laughs> and some of, them are, some of them are not smarter. Well, some of them, most of the time they're posing as government bureaucrats I know, but who I are know. just trying to, you know, we're just trying to fill in this form. So of course, you know, you have the, the fear of, Big Brother looking over your shoulder and checking your work. I think that's how they you know that, that, that people. Marie, that, Marie, that's how they do it. But but how how readily fooled, how readily gold. The, you know, you would think they would be able to have some sort of security check, like to make sure this is really so and so. You're absolutely right, Marie. Navalny's staff they're posing as spies. They're posing as Russian bureaucrats, and they're very good at it. But by the same token, you would think that you know the, the people who are being fooled, being pulled in, would have some checks and balances. Did that strike you? That just how readily some of them opened up immediately? Yes, <laughs> yes. But funny. they always they always say that criminals are are not really all that smart. So maybe that's part of it. So you know, the other thing about this movie I thought was interesting was how loved Novichok as a you know a poisoning agent because it reveals that. It has a quality of shutting down your nervous system and then disappearing completely so it can't even be traced. So Navalny actually lucked out in that he was on a plane after they poisoned him. And once he went into distress, they landed in Berlin and took him to a hospital where he was saved before, you know, it could have dissipated and, you know, he would have just ended up arriving in Russia dead and they wouldn't have been able to prove a thing. So, Marie, you are referring to the man who uh, is a patient in a hospital yes. in Germany? <laughs> yes, right. that so, man. So, so Navalny then was, you know, one, one of the best films that we saw at the festival. And in its history, the film festival has been a really good showcase specifically for documentary films. I mean, it, it, it's known for two things primarily, the documentaries and also the short films, all mm -hmm. kinds of showcases for short films. There are also feature films for sure, some of them quite good, so it's sort of a mixed bag that way. But over time, in more than 20 years time, it's really been documentaries that are so strong. So Marie, let's talk about some of the other documentaries we saw there. 
Well, I think both of us thought A Woman on the Outside was a high watermark for the documentaries, which is about a woman, true story, obviously, it's a documentary, who, you know, runs a bus service to help people visit people who are in prison, you know, far away from where they live, which is like an all-day affair, you know, four hours to get there, a little bit of time that they let you visit, and then, of course, you've got to make the long trek back. And her story, of course, is that she's got a, a father who's in prison, a brother who's in prison. So it's this family story, but it's also a story of what it's like to be the person on the outside. Yeah, in fact, this takes place in Pennsylvania. The families we're talking about live in Philadelphia. They organize this, this bus that regularly will take family members to the prisons, which are usually in central Pennsylvania or even further west, I suppose. Anyway, a long bus ride. And so what was great about seeing the film at the festival was during the Q&A afterwards, the directors were there, as were several members of the main family that's profiled in the film. And to have them talk about it, how, you know, the filmmakers came in and won the trust of this family because they, they shot several hundred hours over weeks and weeks of time, just hanging out at the house, being on the bus, going to the, the prison, not inside it, but, you know, the trip to it. And the fact that, you know, in documentary filmmaking, trust is everything for a film like this. And the family members at the Q&A were joking after a while that when they would plan their schedule, like what day to take the bus out to, to visit, you know, someone incarcerated, they would sort of talk over the day's schedules like, well, let's see, uh, the journalists are coming today, you know, you know, uh, you know they're going to be here. And so they, they, they kind of got built into the schedule that way. I think it's a really worthwhile film and certainly seeing it with some of the women who are in the film and, and with the directors of the film enhances the experience. My only reservation, and Marie and I talked about this after the screening was, it works really well, but at a certain point, about an hour into it, it's feature length, about an hour into it, it does what I call plateauing. What do I mean by plateauing? It reaches a certain level of insight, a certain level of knowledge in terms of what you learn about the family and about the situations and so on. And then it just kind of goes through much the same by way of the material. Marie, why don't you talk a bit about that? Because I think that can happen where you have a really good subject. It's really compelling. How can you not be, be moved by that? But at a certain point in, it's like, oh, okay, here's a scene that's just a slight variation on an earlier scene. Yeah, it did have that, that moment where it did kind of lag. You were still invested in the characters and, and hoping everybody turned out all right. There's a young man who you're hoping, you know, navigates through this, this minefield of, you know, how not to fall into the same traps as people who've gone before. How do you help someone who's come back? You know, how do you help them get back on their feet? What do they not understand anymore about how the world works and what's happening? All of those things are, are very compelling, but it probably could have gone through another edit to just sort of tighten it up a little bit. But overall, I think that was one of the strongest oh, documentaries. The, the other one I wanted to mention was Fire of Love, which yeah. was about some volcanologists who went from place to place just, you know, to document volcanoes. That was their passion. And the great part for the viewer is you get to see all this amazing footage of these active volcanoes. I'm sort of interested in volcanoes anyway, so I would have watched this if it was on the Discovery Channel. But it really felt like you got a really private viewing of a world you would never see if you weren't one of these two people who, by the way, perished doing the thing that they loved, which was documenting volcanoes. My immediate response when we saw the film together was, 
you can't go wrong with volcano footage. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it's yep. mesmerizing to have the camera so close to an active volcano. This is actually a, a French couple. These scientists were, I mean, their passion you know, for each other was all a matter of being wed to, to being in love with volcanoes. And so they really are obsessive that way. They go around the world and they are scientists. They're, they're tracking all this. But you have to wonder, like, what is the impulse? I mean, to totally devote your lives to volcanoes that way. I mean, that's really what bonded them as a couple. When you mentioned, you know, the kind of film that it is, it's actually a National Geographic film. So, you know, these are films, Navalny is CNN, this is National Geographic, a lot of the good work being done in the documentary format. But that film called Fire of Love really is worth seeing. Even if you don't feel like you have a great interest in volcanoes, believe me, once you start watching the film, you will have that interest. I saw some other documentaries there as well. The filmmaker Stanley Nelson was there for Closing Night with two new documentaries he's made. One is about Frederick Douglass and the other is about Harriet Tubman. And of course, of local interest, and here we are sitting in a movie theater, the Parkway in Baltimore, is that of course, Frederick Douglass had lived in Baltimore for a while, and both he and Harry Tubman were from Maryland's Eastern Shore. So there's some location footage that's in, in the films themselves. I gotta say, the films are solid. They are going to air on PBS this fall. Each runs around an hour. They're definitely worth seeing. It's the sort of combination of talking head experts and by way of archival footage, by, uh, we're talking archival photographs primarily, that kind of blending of, of the experts talking and then the old photographs and then some location footage of, you know, the marshlands along the eastern shore and so on. But one of the great advantages, again, of having the filmmaker there is he was asked about, well, what was it like making, you know, a film about Frederick Douglass and then one about Harry Tubman? He said he had like opposite problems here. Frederick Douglass is thought to be the most photographed American of the 19th century or almost ever. I mean, and he knew how to convey himself, not only through his writing, but, but through his image and, and those iconic images of him. And so if it's a problem, it's, it's a happy problem in that not only did Douglas write three autobiographies, he wrote so many speeches and letters and this and that and all those hundreds of photographs. There's a wealth of you know, written and visual information about Douglas. So for the filmmaker, trying to get that down to an hour. The opposite problem comes in with Harriet Tubman, who could not read or write. There are only a, a half dozen or so known photographs of her. You know, it is a documented life, but not nearly as well documented as Douglas's. And so he then had to try to deal with that to put that across. But the fact that, you know, for anyone living in our area, you know, to see, you know, footage of the Eastern Shore like that and, and to have people talking about what, what it was like to, to grow up there, even though the films on their own as films are what I keep calling solid, they're well made, they're, they're well worth seeing, there's that local connection that definitely enhances them. Now, I did want to mention just for, you know, people who are interested in this kind of stuff, in between the films, you could go into the lobby and get a glass of wine, you could get popcorn and eat it in the lobby, but there was no food anywhere in the theaters, which was, I don't know, kind of different. I also wanted to get your opinion, Mike. I kind of think I know what it is, and I have mine, of course. I kind of wished that you had been able to do it both ways, go see it with everybody else or still be able to stream it, because the advantage to streaming was that you could see everything, even things that were booked at the same time in the past, you know, that would have been booked in two different venues. Rather than say, well, I'm just going to limit myself to what's at the parkway. I'm not going to schlep all the way over to Micah. When everything was streaming, you had just this open bucket of everything was possible. I kind of wish they had taken advantage of what we learned from the pandemic, which was that, 
you know, streaming is, is here to stay. I think they could have gotten an even bigger audience for some of this stuff. One thing I want you to comment on briefly, Mike, is whether any of the shorts, the Baltimore shorts in particular, struck you. And I also wanted to mention to people who want to go next year that there's almost always one movie where it's introduced by John Waters. And that's always sort of a fun local moment. There were some really enjoyable shorts, the, the Baltimore ones and other ones as well. John appears every year with a film that he's hosting and, and you know, go to see it just because he's hosting it. And, you know, so there are things like that you should always look for. I very quickly want to put in a plug for one of the feature films that was at the festival called Hit the Road. It's made by Panar Panahi, the son of Jafar Panahi, a very well-known Iranian director. It's a very Iranian film in terms of the cameras in the car with the family as they go through the countryside. It's told in a kind of incremental way. It's really well worth seeing, and it's now starting to play on the art house circuit. So this is an example of a film that, that I saw at the film festival, and then it's going to art house theaters where everyone else can you know, have a chance to see it. But again, the film's called Hit the Road, a really strong film from Iran. And I think it's actually at the Charles. Yeah, it's coming. Which brings us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also on Pandora and Spotify under Dragon Digital Radio. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.